1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to be back with you. Thank you, Dan, for filling in last minute for me last week as I was sick. I'm feeling well now, and it's good to be here, and I'm thankful to be with you this morning. By the way, the cry room is functional. We have been a few weeks without the cry room. If you have little ones that you need to take into the cry room, you can exit this door and go to the right and back behind the pipe and drape curtains. The cry room is available, and there's a speaker in there, so you'll be able to hear. So we're continuing in our series in First John, finishing it up here in these weeks of Advent. And uh, this is the second week of Advent, as we've said, and during this season... Um, we're remembering the first coming of Jesus, Christmas, and also anticipating the second coming of Jesus. That's one of the reasons I like Advent so much. It situates us in the middle, in the already of what God has done for us in Jesus, as well as anticipating the not yet, what Jesus is still to do when he comes again. In so many ways, the cry of Advent is, come quickly, Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Uh, one of my favorite Advent songs is by U2. U2 and B.B. King. The song is called When Love Comes to Town. It is an Advent song, even though they don't know it's an Advent song. Here's how it goes. I was a sailor. I was lost at sea. I was under the waves before love rescued me. I was a fighter. I could turn on a thread. Now I stand accused of the things I've said. When love comes to town, I'm going to jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. And then the edge hits this amazing solo. Anyway, it's a good song. You should listen to it. Um, Advent tells us that love has come to town. Love has come to town in Jesus, and Jesus will come again. But in this middle waiting time that all of us are in, love changes us. God, who is love, makes us through his spirit into people of love. The love of God that he gives to us is a love that, as John writes, overcomes the world. This section of 1 John continues this theme of love that we've been studying for weeks now. Specifically, it talks about how the love of God makes us people of love and helps us overcome. A couple of weeks ago, Brian preached on the end of chapter 4. And he said, very helpfully, that love is not an ideal that we aspire to or that we compare God to. Rather, love is defined by God's own character. And so love at its core, Brian said, is a self-giving, a self-giving characteristic. God gives of himself. He gives us his son. He gives us his spirit in the great redemptive act of love in salvation. And so because God is love and because God has brought us into his family through the new birth, we can more and more become people of love as we wait for Jesus' return. 
And that's really crucial in the context of 1 John. As we've seen, John wrote this letter to early churches in which false teaching was dividing and confusing. And he's asking, what is the tie that binds a church together? What reason do we have to stick with Jesus and with Jesus' people? And one of the main answers John gives is that the church is a place of love. It's a place where we love God and where we also love one another. And here he tells us that our mutual love is a victorious love. Now, I wonder if you believe that's true. I mean, really, if you've actually been in actual human churches, it's hard to believe that sometimes. John says that the supernatural power of the gospel works through ordinary Christian communities and relationships. And that's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that as we love each other, the supernatural power of the gospel is working. And it's hard to believe because, listen, sometimes we don't like each other. It's possible to like or to love someone and not like someone. Your wife probably could tell you that, by the way. It's possible to to love someone and not like someone. And and sometimes we think, I I don't really even want to be around these people. The church is wearing me out. I'm tired of it. I've been hurt by it. How is it possible that the victorious, overcoming power of God is available and present here? Well, it's possible because the scripture tells us that it is. That the spirit is present here. And through ordinary Christian relationships, he is at work teaching us how to love. So that's what we're going to look at together for just a couple of minutes. Three parts as we think about love that overcomes. The mutuality of love first, and then second, the desire of love. And lastly, the engine, the engine of love. So let's look first at the mutuality, the mutuality of love. Look in verse one with me, if you would. As we've seen throughout this study, John does not reason or write like, say, the apostle Paul. John's writing is much more circular. It's much more thematic than it is linear. And that's as true here as anywhere else in the letter. If you look in verse 1 of chapter 5, you'll see that he's covering old ground when he writes that if we've been born again through the miraculous, regenerating work of God's Spirit, we will believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then he writes, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In other words, one chief piece of evidence that we are truly born again and that we really love God is that we love each other, that we love God's people. This resembles what he wrote in chapter 3. In verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for brother, the brothers. Again, in verse Uh, Chapter 4, verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John's repeating himself here. He's saying that love for each other in this particular place and time is a test of our genuine love for God. But then look at what he says in verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2. By this we know... That we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Did you catch it? He completely reverses what he has just said. Again and again, John has said, you cannot claim to love God and not love God's people, right? Love of God's people is evidence of love of God. But here he says that love of God 
is evidence of love of God's people. So what are we to make of this? Is John just, as a 90-year-old man, confused as he writes this? No. He's saying that there's a mutuality. A mutuality to Christian love. Listen, love for God and love for God's people are interchangeable. They're interconnected. They're mutually inclusive. You cannot have one without the other. The one informs the other and vice versa. If you love God's kids, that's a sign that you really love God. And if you love God, really, it's a sign that you love God's kids. I think as parents, if you're a parent, you know, even if you're not a parent, you can get this. When people love our children, we feel loved by them. Isn't that true? When I was growing up in the church I grew up in, we had the same children's ministry pastor for decades. Her name, Karen, and she's still to this day is a wonderful lady. And she was beloved in our church growing up because of how well she loved children. She loved the children of the church. And because she loved the children of the church so well, and because the children's ministry she led loved the children of the church so well, everyone in the church felt the love that she had for the children. That's exactly what John's getting at here. He's saying you cannot love God if you don't love God's people. And you cannot love God's people if you don't love God. The great theologian John Calvin put it this way. One cannot have God as father without the church as mother. Now, he meant many things by that, but I think one thing he meant is what John is saying here. Part of what he meant is that connection to God's church, connection to God's people is essential for genuine growth in Christ. That's what John's saying. And listen, this is really challenging for us. I mean, if we're really thinking through this together, And if we're really reflecting on our lives together, and if we're really honest with ourselves and with with each other, this, this can be a hard thing. Why? Here's why. Because we've been hurt and damaged by God's people. Haven't we? The sheep sometimes bite. Did you know sheep can bite? Thank you. They can. I can attest to that. Uh, there was a very popular podcast in the last year or so called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. How many of you are familiar with that? Mars Hill Church was a huge mega church in Seattle, uh, part of the Acts 29 network, which we're a part of. And it just sort of took off and became a, a, a kind of Christian subculture phenomenon. And, and what an important question to ask is, why was this podcast so popular? I mean, it was kind of an interesting story. But I think the main reason is because it told a story in very extreme senses of really of the spiritual abuse And the pastoral malpractice that so many believers in Jesus have experienced in their lives in churches. And so it's hard because we have to ask, how can we continue to be a part of an organization that is so hypocritical and sometimes so harmful, but claims to be a place of love, all the while dealing out death blows to so many people? That's a real struggle, and we need to just own that that's a real struggle. One thing I'm so thankful that God has done in our church is bring many who have been hurt by the church. That's a part of San Antonio's story, friends. 
Many have been hurt by the church in their past. And, and we've seen a lot of that. And God has, by his grace, allowed some healing to happen through our ministry. But I'm not naive to the fact that perhaps even our church has hurt some of you. Being in the church over the long haul is not for the faint of heart. It's not. And yet the call of God here is clear. What better way to demonstrate love for God than to persevere with his sometimes fickle, sometimes mean, sometimes hypocritical people? One old RUF college pastor used to say, if Jesus loves the church enough to die for her, you can love the church enough to put up with her. If Jesus loves the church enough to die for her, you can love the church enough to put up with her. And I don't want to minimize real hurt that the church causes or say that you have to stick with an unhealthy, toxic church or with unhealthy, toxic leaders. If that's been your situation, you've been very right to get out. But not out entirely. Find a healthier place to worship and fellowship. God is sticking with us in love. And John's saying he's asking you to do the same. If we love God's people, it's evidence that we love God. And if we love God, it's evidence that we love God's people. There's a mutuality, a mutuality to love. Second, John talks about the desire, the desire of love. I find this so interesting. Verse 3. We see that love changes us by changing our desires. Look in verse 3 with me. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Okay, pause. Stop there. That makes sense, I think, to most of us. Uh, it's something we've already seen in First John. Back in chapter 2, John said, Whoever says, I know God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. So he said, you can't claim to know God, you can't claim to love God, and then ignore God's law, ignore God's way, ignore God's word. And some of us, I think maybe most of us, we, we hear that, and we, we love Jesus, and we want to be faithful, and we say to ourselves, now stick with me here, guys, here's what we say to ourselves, I love God, I do love God. And I need to show it. I need to discipline myself to obey him. Because it says right here in the Bible that if you love God, you should obey his commandments. So I'm going to resolve. I'm going to resolve to do God's will. And here's the thing. I want you to hear this. We tend, I tend, to treat obedience to God in the same way we treat, say, New Year's resolutions. Think about how... If you do New Year's resolutions, some of you don't do them. So you're like, I need to resolve to do a New Year's resolution. You know, but some of you do New Year's resolutions. And uh, we, we think, okay, I need to exercise more. I need to pray more. I need to be less angry. I need to eat less sugar or drink less coffee or drink less alcohol. And then we determine to do the thing. We're trying to choose, fortifying our resolve, right? We... we we choose things that are not naturally attractive to us by reliance on willpower. We discipline ourselves. We choose things that are not naturally attractive to us by discipline, reliance on willpower. And don't misunderstand me. I do think that discipline and determination are essential to living responsibly. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with this way of living and thinking. We lump choosing God's will and obeying God's word in with things that are not naturally attractive. And that is a tragedy. We assume that obeying God, 
that choosing God's will is like eating kale instead of ice cream. Is it any wonder then that surrendering to God's will and obeying God's law evokes mixed feelings in so many of us? John has a different view. Look at what he says. That we keep his commandments and his commandments are what? Not burdensome. What is John saying? He's saying that when we are, when we are captivated by God's love, and when we're caught up in the mutuality of love for God and love for each other, we more and more learn that obeying God's commandments is not just achievable, it's desirable. Obeying God's commandments is not just something you have the power to do because you're in Christ and have his spirit. It's something that you should want and can want and desire to do. When we're resting in God's love, the Holy Spirit teaches us over time that obedience is not just a matter of willpower. It's not just a matter of disciplined resolve. It's a matter of desire. It's a matter of joy. Uh, John's saying here that a life of obedience to God is the most attractive life possible and the least burdensome life possible. The world tells us that when we're Christians, we're restricting our desires and we're restricting the opportunities for freedom available to us and we're restricting our joy. That's a lie. That is not true. The open path, the full path, the life-giving path, the path of wisdom and joy and hope and peace and life is the path of obedience to God's good, wise, and kind word to us. The fear of God is the beginning, not of restriction. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the most desirable life possible. David Benner has helped me so much on this idea. He has a book called Choosing God's Will. And in the book, he writes this, quote, We fail to recognize that our problem is not so much knowing God's way as being utterly convinced that choosing God is choosing life. If Christ is to have our will, he must first have our hearts. The longest chapter in the Bible, by the way, provides a great example for this. It's Psalm 119. And literally, it's like 160-something verses. And in every verse, David says something like this. Verse 40, I long for your precepts. When was the last time you said to God, I long, I mean, desperately yearn for your precepts? Verse 70, I delight in your law. Verse 113, I hate the double-minded, but I love your commandments. Love for God and love for each other as it works itself out in our stories involves not just a change in our fortitude and self-discipline. That only gets you so far. It involves a change in our desires so that we don't just have to resolve to obey. We want to obey. So when we're thinking about this, with the illumination the Spirit gives, I think that it makes sense. I think that I can help you see that it's reasonable. Let me just give one example, one practical example. Let's take, uh, for example, uh, a sin we probably all struggle with. Let's say self-reliance 
all of us to one degree or another have some pride. We're all to one degree or another self-reliant. We want to be in charge, don't we? We want to set our own schedules. We want to have our own agendas. And we get really flipped out when our agenda doesn't go the way we want. Like I was flipping out when the projector screen wasn't working earlier. Right? That did not go with Luke's agenda for Sunday, December 4th, 2022. And so because we all kind of struggle with self-reliance and because we want to prevent anxiety and fear, which is ironic, by the way, because trying to be in charge creates more anxiety. But that's a different sermon. Uh, we see this in our lives, and so we, we think, man, I'm so proud and self-reliant, and I like to be in control, so I want to be less anxious. I want to be less self-reliant. So here's what, I'm going to take 10 deep breaths. I'm going to do yoga, which does help, by the way, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, but yet often, here's my point, that is external. It's not really changing our desires, you see. In this case, our desire to control our lives our desire to rely on ourselves. What John's saying is that the love of God can free us from the inside out, from this sin, in helping us to see by faith that it is a better and a happier life to trust God and let the chips fall where they may. To trust God and let the chips fall where they may than to kill ourselves literally with fretting and worry and fear. You will be happier You'll be happier. It will not be a burden to die to pride, to die to self-reliance, and to trust God because his commandments are the way of wisdom. His commandments are not burdensome. We're much more joyful when we rest in them, when our desires are morphed by seeing how his law leads us to life. What does Jesus say? Come to me, everyone who's tired. You could say, come to me, everyone who's anxious and fearful. Take my yoke upon you because my burden is easy and my yoke is light. It's light. The great thing about loving God and the great thing about loving one another is that as we do it via keeping God's commandments, we're living the joyful, most joyful, wisest, best life now. T.M. Joel Osteen. Jesus came for our hearts. That's what John's saying. And his spirit changes our desires so that as we grow, we see more and more that his commandments aren't a burden, but they're good and true and joyful and abundant. The mutuality of love, the desire of love, last, the engine, the engine of love. Verse four and five, tell us about that. John has said, okay, if we love God's people, it's evidenced in our love for God. And if we love God, it's evidenced in our love for God's people, right? There's a mutuality to Christian love. And he's also said that loving God involves obeying God. And obeying God is not burdensome, but actually fits well with our deepest human desire for happiness. The law of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's it's the pathway to joy. But here he reminds us that we have the capacity and, and the power for this kind of love a love for God that desires to obey his commandments and a love for God's people, even in all of their brokenness and sinfulness. What is the capacity? Where do we get the power? Look at what he says, verse four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? So As we wrap up, let me walk you through his train of thought here just for a moment. John's saying that if we are born into God's family, 
if we're born into God's family through the sovereign work of God's spirit giving us new birth, we will believe the good news of the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus came to die for our sins, that he was raised from the dead to conquer death and hell, and that one day he is going to return and make everything new and whole and good again. And, and when we believe the gospel, we receive a new identity as God's sons and daughters. We're now the children of God. And along with that, a new power, God's spirit resides with us. And God's spirit begins to change and, and to transform us from the inside out, giving us the kind of words that John uses here, victory. Giving us this overcoming the world. How? He says, through our faith. That is, the spirit of God helps us to see that, that it's not the world with all of its seductive offerings and its seductive call that is truly most desirable. Rather, it's love for God. So the engine of love, John's saying, is our faith, which connects us. It, it unites us to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ through whom we overcome. The engine of love is faith in the gospel through whom we have been the gospel of Jesus, through whom we have been born again into a living hope. So by, by faith, working through love, John writes, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. Victory awaits any single one of you who connect to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Victory that does not come from your resolve, that does not come from your willpower, that does not come from your discipline, although all of those are good things in their right and proper places. But victory that comes from what Jesus has already done for us. Faith is the receiving of Christ's work. And our overcoming is certain because Christ has overcome. That phrase, we shall overcome, actually is a hymn. It's probably the great hymn of the civil rights movement. An old African-American spiritual from the 19th century that, that has been sung by many different artists. U2 has a version of that too, by the way. It's really good. So does Springsteen, also really good. Kevin loves that one. Um, Martin Luther King actually quoted the hymn, we shall overcome. In his last sermon, four days before his assassination in Memphis. And I think it's worth quoting King here just as we wrap up because what he's saying in so many ways fits well with what I think John is communicating. Listen to what Dr. King said. Quote, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome with this faith we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day. And in the words of prophecy, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This will be a great day. This will be a marvelous hour. And at that moment, the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. What is Advent about? It's about us waiting for that to come fully true. We will overcome. 
if we connect to the Lord Jesus now through our love and one day through God's love for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's pray.